So we are continuing our series on the last prayers of Jesus, and tonight is the second to the last prayer, and it's just before his last prayer. So the last prayer of Jesus is, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, and the second to the last prayer is just moments before, really, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then earlier, about three hours before that, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's the one we talked about last week. But this week we're talking about the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me prayer on the cross? <clears throat> and so it's recorded in two of the Gospels, and the other two Gospels do not specifically record it, but they have timing around it. So let me read the accounts from the different Gospels from Matthew from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, um, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, um, the language that he's using here is a mix. The Eli, Eli, and the Lama are Hebrew. The Sabathani is a, um, another language, Aramaic or something in that. I can't remember the exact word for it. So it's sort of a mixed language. And in his agony, his hearers misunderstood part of it. As we can see, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. So that's how they interpreted what he was saying. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And then when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And so from the other Gospels, we understand that what he cried out in a loud voice was both or either it is finished, and Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. So those are the two things that he could have, or both of those things that he could have said in the loud voice at that time. So that's the Matthew account. In, in Mark, it says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So that's almost word for word, isn't it? And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and it's spelled a little differently, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabathani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so part of the reason that the spelling is a little bit different is because it is complicated, because it's sort of this mix between two languages that Jesus is using. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And so almost again, word for word of the Matthew account, and someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So again, that this Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani prayer happens just before he dies, right? Within moments or minutes of the time that he uh, yells or shouts out, it is finished, and then, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Okay, so now in Luke, 
which does not include this specific prayer, but for context, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. So, so far, three for three of the Gospels are all telling us that it's dark from noon to three, right? And so then that ellipsis there is where I think, uh, in Luke's account, where Jesus would have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, said this, he breathed his last. And so that's the Luke account. And now we have John. And John uh, will just assume that Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it says, Later knowing that everything had been now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So those are the uh, four accounts of the last moments of Jesus' life. A couple of things that I, uh, I noticed um, in, in my studies here, as I had always thought that Jesus had been offered a drink only once, but in the account, he's offered a drink right after the, confu- the he's offered a mixture of gall right after he is first arrives at Golgotha and he refuses that drink because that drink would have given him, it would have been sort of a, um, what's it called when you take a pain medicine, uh, anesthesia, it would have been a way to, to avoid the pain. And he refused that drink, and then the things happen where they gamble for his clothes, and then he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he tells the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then it gets dark at noon, and it goes dark until three, and we don't hear anything from Jesus for three hours. At the end of that time, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then they offer him a drink again, and he, it just touches his lips, and he dies. And so that is a, I had always thought there was only one offer, but there was two offers now that I've studied it more carefully. All right, so my questions for us tonight Um, in this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first question is, what language is this? And I've already told you that it's a mixture of Hebrew and Coptic or Coptic or something, I can't remember. And so it's just interesting that he kind of, um, like, isn't Yiddish sort of a mixture of Jewish and English or Spanglish? You you know what I'm talking about? You, you, You kind of mix languages. And I don't know why Jesus did that or if it was an, the, a measure of the amount of agony he was in. But for whatever reason, he says this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not the Greek language of the time. Not, it, was a, it was a mixture of Aramaic and Hebrew. Why does he say, what do you think it means? What would you want me to share about the phrase, my God, my God? What do you think is going on there. How would you explain that to a group of teens during VBS? Katie? Uh, In this moment, Jesus sees God as God, not his father. In all the other times, 
prays to his father. You know, we're the close, the part of the tri Trinity together. But here, Jesus is very looking at God as in his role as God. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Gone is the sweet and familiar language of Jesus about my father. Even a few hours ago, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in a few moments, he's going to say, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. But in this context, he is not addressing God as Father. Yeah. Yeah. So this... Uh, it betrays or reveals, maybe is a better word, the amount of relational isolation that Jesus is feeling right now. Yeah. Other insights into that particular phrasing? Any other thoughts about it? It's from Psalm 22.1. Yeah. I, I try to remember that I, I thought it was something that was reiterated from Psalms. Yeah. What's interesting to me is <clears throat> I would have taught you that when the earth went dark and the sun stopped shining, that Jesus entered into the true uh, horror part of his suffering. All of the pain before that was bad enough. All the mockery that happened before that. But God kind of silences everybody. He covers the the naked shame of the body of the Lord Jesus at some, in some level by having it be dark. And so it seems to be quiet and dark. And during this time is when I would say that Jesus was experiencing the full cup of God's wrath. He was being sent to hell for us. He was experiencing hell. It's interesting to me that at the end of the three hours, he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22, which it would seem to me to be a, um, I would have thought he would have said this at the beginning of the three hours. You know what I'm trying to say? But it's, the, it's at the end. And so he is silent and alone and separated from God, his father, not because of anything he has done wrong, but because he is in these hours bearing the penalty of your and my sin, the fact that we've rebelled against God. So whatever Jesus is experiencing here, we are the ones who deserved that. He did not. Um, <clears throat> I have on my PowerPoint here, this Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so... If Jesus, or since Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, I think it's helpful for us to read what he's experiencing. He's saying, why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. So Jesus' experience is that God is so far away from him. He has never, ever experienced this separation from the Father like this. Never has he ever had a relational breakdown of this magnitude. He says, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And so in the light, he cries out, but by night, I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. So he, 
So in Psalm 22, if Jesus is quoting this, if he's thinking this through, if he's meditating this on this during his time on the cross, he is uh, praising the, the one, the Holy One of Israel. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. And so Jesus is saying to God, all of the predecessors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King David, and and Solomon and all of, all the people who've been believers, they trusted in you and you delivered them, but you're not delivering me. And he said, they cried out to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. And yet Jesus is stuck here and he finishes this three-hour time by repeating, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, but I am a worm, not a human being. I am scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I mean, that's a straight-up perfect prediction of how Jesus is being treated on the cross, right? So I'm going to back back up to my outline. So that's the thoughts we would have about, my God, my God. It's a quote from Psalm 22, and Jesus is experiencing this rejection. Why do you think he repeats it? Why does he say, my God, my God? What would it, what would it, in what ways would it be different if he had just said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does, why, what difference does it make that he said it twice? Other than, I guess we could argue, to quote Psalm 22 perfectly, right? So he's quoting Psalm 22 perfectly. But what other variables might that mean? What do you think? Okay, so in, in, in those days and in many languages, without the use of exclamation marks, you can provide emphasis by repeating, right? So you can... Um, so the repetition amplifies an emphasis. What else might it mean? Or what does the emphasis mean? Why emphasize that? Say, uh, Doug? Okay, so it emphasizes the the transcendent nature of the judge to whom he's speaking, right? Barb, did you? Were you? Well, I was just thinking that they, had, they thought he was calling Elijah earlier and he wanted to make sure that they understood who he was talking So maybe for our sake a little bit too, to make sure that it wasn't just uh, oy vey kind of words, right? It was to make it real clear, yeah? If I were to say, Tammy, what are you doing now? Or if I would say, Tammy, Tammy, what are you doing now? What's the difference between repeating her name twice? Get her attention. It can, the emphasis can be a, uh, a term of uh, tenderness or closeness, right? It's, it's the seriousness of them. Tammy, Tammy, you know, it's like, it's... it's uh, it can be interpreted as revealing a heart towards God, not just recognizing his transcendent nature, but that 
Jesus is truly lamenting, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Right? So there's a, there may be that component to it. I don't know. Why does he say why? Why does Jesus say why have you forsaken me? Is he surprised? No. We would all have to conclude he knows exactly what's happening and he knew that it would happen before he did it. And last night when he prayed in the garden, he was so distraught that he sweat as a word drops of blood from the stress of pre-tasting this moment. He knew how bad it was going to be. And so is this a theological question? Why are you doing this? I don't understand. Why? Why? What does the why mean? Yeah. So it's educational, Chuck is saying, that he's, he's teaching us even in that moment, right? Is that what you're saying? That he, yeah, so this, is, so this is educational to teach us not only that he's quoting Psalm 22, but to tell us what is going on, right? What is going on is he has become forsaken. It would have been sort of odd, I suppose, to say, for Jesus to say, my God, my God, now you've forsaken me, right? But the, the why brings into it the magnitude of the pain of the experience for Jesus. It's not that it was surprising theologically or chronologically or that he, he knew it was going to come. It's that he was the shock and the horror of this moment of his being separated from the Father is so dark that we needed to know that that was going on. I read one uh, commentator, and I think this is a wise perspective, who said the presence of this prayer in the gospel accounts is one of the most significant proofs that it's really a true story because if you were making this up about your martyr, your king, who is the martyr, you would never put such weakness into his lips. Right? You would never have him, at this most critical moment, you would never have him look so weak. You would never think to do that. So Jesus is really hurting. I think we need to, as much as we can, drink in the the magnitude of how bad he is hurting so that we can understand what was due to us and that which we will never experience. And so Jesus was and always has been in relationship with God the Father. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They exist eternally without beginning, without end, the eternity, one being, three persons. And the relationship between them is love, so much so that they could even say that God himself is love because in his Trinitarian nature with three persons, there is always perfect harmony and love, never conflict, never confusion, never misunderstanding, always total union of goal and mutual edification and 
always on the same page, all the time, always. And then, uh, by God's plan, God sends his son, and he tells the world, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, and the Father loves everyone so much that in our sin, he's going to rescue us, and he sends Jesus. And Jesus says, I love you all so much that I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And in all of that, this moment is exactly what's necessary for God to save us from our sins. Is somebody has to pay the penalty for our wickedness, our rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death, and somebody has to pay. And this Jesus is so great that even though he lived a perfect life and is not guilty in any way, he says, I'll pay for you because I love you. And he dies, and he goes to the cross. And actually, the death on the cross is kind of the end of the suffering. This is the depth of the suffering, is while he is still alive and conscious in the body, God, God makes him who knew no sin, he makes him to be sin for us. And God the Father breaks relationship. He he separates from the person Jesus. It's an incredible mystery we can't understand, but that's what's going on. And so the magnitude of his suffering here is really a big deal for you and I because it's the, it teaches us how much suffering we deserve and what we will get in hell if we are not a follower of Jesus, right? So it tells us what hell is like but also tells us the magnitude of God's love for us to spare us from hell, that he would taste it himself. Pretty amazing. Any other thoughts on that particular phrase or anything I've said that you wanted to share? All right, well, let me um, take the next point then. What is really meant by forsaken me? kind of talked about that he became sin for us but what is why did he say forsaken why didn't he just say you're punishing me why why does it hurt so bad what does he mean by forsaken I turned his back what does forsaken means right forsaken means I disown you I forget you isn't that the, almost the worst, right? Isn't almost the worst treatment a person can give you is being ignored, is almost worse than being reviled. It's to be, to be separated, to have his back turned on you, to be left. Any other thoughts? Well, Jesus experienced that. And so I think, again, I've already tried to explain that. But what is going on here is that Jesus is experiencing our punishment on the cross. There are some who have argued that this was, uh, there's, there's a number of theological heresies that are based on this. One of them is that, the, that Jesus was never really truly God and man, that he was just a human being that was indwelt by God. And then on the cross, the indwelling part of God left him 
And so it would be like the deity part left, the humanity part alone on the cross. That would be a way to interpret this that would be heretical, right? Because that would deny the fact that Jesus was one person always with two natures. And so it's not that. And uh, it's, it's that Jesus is paying the penalty for our sin. All right, well, let me uh, remind us again then of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groanings. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as a holy one. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm. Not even a human being in the sense of value, right? I am scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And so when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, verse 1, at the end of the three hours, he's either restarting Psalm 22 in his mind, or he's telling all of us, you want to know what I've gone through? Go look it up. Read Psalm 22. That's what, I'm, that's what I've gone through. And then he's able to say, it's finished. So that's pretty amazing. I also wanted to point out to you something that uh, the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 5. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So the Hebrews writer may be saying that even on the cross, Jesus was doing fervent cries and tears, calling out to God to please save me from this death. Remember last night in the garden when he was praying, my father, if there's any way that this cup would pass from me, please have it happen. But not my will, but yours be done. And so he was heard by God because of his reverent submission. So God heard him, but did not answer his prayer. God, God heard Jesus begging for salvation, and God turned his back on him and would not give it to him. If there's anything that you should ever be able to say is if I live a perfect life, God ought to bless me. That's sort of the way the law works. And yet Jesus lived a perfect life, and God did not bless him. He cursed him. He became a curse for us because of the plan to purchase salvation for us. So because of this reverent submission, um, his reverent submission, how's it go? Because of his reverent submission, I must have cut a word, son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So because Jesus did this submission and he learned through obedience what he suffered, so because of what Jesus did in those three hours and suffered for you and I, he was once made perfect. Not that he wasn't already morally perfect, but now he is made perfect to the end of being an eternal priest who can offer his blood for our salvation. He became the source so Jesus is the way, he's the source, he's the one who can make it possible for you and I to be saved. He's the source of eternal 
salvation because as the eternal person of God, he endured all of our hell in those hours. For all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So if you and I obey Jesus and give him our lives, he is the source of our eternal salvation because he experienced, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that's pretty cool. The other thing I was encouraged by is the end of Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. So even by faith in the suffering of the cross, Jesus finishes Psalm 22 and says, I'm telling you what, I'm going to declare your name to my people, to my people. Who are his people? You and I, right? The ones he's purchased by his salvation. Jesus does this, and it's not without effect. He knows for sure who he has saved, and we belong to him, and we are his people, and he's going to tell us all about it and tell us about God, his Father. All who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. All of you descendants of the faith of Abraham. All of you people who follow God. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Isn't that something? I have to say from this end of Psalm 22 that God answered Jesus' prayer on the cross in the three hours came to an end. And he said, it's finished. And it was over. God did ultimately answer his prayer and did listen to his cry for help. He endured our suffering and he was relieved and he will be exalted for that. So it's a pretty important story, a pretty important part of the Bible for us as his people. Amen? Any closing thoughts on this? I'm done a little bit early, but that's good. Any thoughts that you would want to say? Any things that you would maybe give me advice to as I try to share this with the teens in June who work at the VBS? Any other thoughts? Pardon? So Barbara's asking, did Jesus at this moment when he's prayed this prayer, did he lose his humanness? And help me understand what you're saying, maybe as a God man. Right. Yeah. Um, it is really a mystery to try to unravel. And the the ancients have reminded us that we need to recognize that Jesus is one, one person, not two persons. The Trinity is one essence, one kind of being, an uncreated being with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, Jesus, is one person, but he has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. His divine nature was forever and eternal. His human nature started once in the womb of Mary. 
And God, so he began, so he, Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself and became a human being. He took the form of a servant. And so he took on human nature as at a moment in time. And so you could argue, it's hard for us to understand, but prior to that, Jesus was able to do anything, anything that the Father could do but when he took on human nature, he gave up. He emptied himself, and he didn't lose it, but he was no longer everywhere present, like the Father's everywhere present. Jesus now became localized in a spirit and a body, in a human. So Jesus is at one place at a time, even though the Holy Spirit is everywhere and the Father's everywhere. But when he did that, he did not lose his divine nature. So he just chooses to empty himself. And the ancients tell us that we're supposed to understand this mysterious incarnation, that the human nature and the, and the divine nature are never confused, never mixed, but neither are they separated or divided. And so we just know what it's not. And anytime we say they split or he did something without the other part knowing or something, then we get towards a heresy. We just have to sit back and look at the mystery. We cannot understand this. It's beyond us. But, but I would have to say that the human nature of Jesus experienced the full wrath of God's um, rejection on the cross. So he felt it like you and I felt, would have felt it. He felt it in his body. He felt it in his heart, in his soul. He really felt it. The, the son never lost his godness, and so how could you say that God could be separated from God is a mystery we can't comprehend. I don't know how to answer that. I would just say it's a mystery. But, but Jesus, the person, knows what it's like to go to hell. And we will never, if we're in Christ. That's an amazing thing. He, he knows something we'll never know. And everything we know, he knows, right? So every experience we have, he understands our experiences. There's experiences that he has had that we will never understand. What a great gift that he would pay that price and experience that so I never have to. Because if I was not a believer, if I remain in my sin, I will experience that. But I, will never get to, I would never have gotten to experience the forgiveness of sin in him, right? So you either get to experience what Jesus did for you, or you experience never having to experience hell. So, any other thoughts or questions? Chuck. I would say that he is a man now. Yes. So I would understand he's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, and he's the great high priest, and when he comes back to earth, he will um, establish his kingdom, and he'll walk around in his human body, and we'll see him as he is. We'll be like him. He has a spiritual body. We'll have a spiritual body. This is why it was important for him to ascend to heaven. We don't make a big deal about it typically, but you know he was on the earth. After he rose from the dead, he... He was here for many days and gave many convincing proofs of his resurrection. He appeared to many people, sometimes as many as, I think, was it 500 at once? And there was, a, I wouldn't be surprised, 
I can't wait to find out, but there are probably appearances he made that are not recorded in the Bible. He may have gone to different people, the woman at the well that he had met, and say, hey, remember you trusted me? I'm here. Or you know, who knows what other people he assured. But then at that time, he ascended into heaven, and the, and the angel said why are you, to his disciples, why are you looking up into heaven? The same Jesus will return in the same way that he has left. And so he's going to go up in the clouds, he's going to come back in the clouds. But it's really important that Jesus does ascend because he ascends to his place of honor. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's enthroned in heaven. And so he is serving in a heaven place with a spiritual body, but it is a physical body. And if you were there, you could touch him and he would eat fish. He could. John. Yes. Yeah, that would be a wrong thing to ever view Jesus as splitting up and showing in two places. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so that whole mystery of where he goes during the three days that he's before he raises from the dead is an interesting question. Just like you and I, when we die, we don't have our body, and I don't know if we have our resurrected body yet because that's supposed to happen at the end. And so you and I, uh, when we die, the scriptures say when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And so we're with him, but are we in our physical, our new body yet or not is sort of a mystery. But we get a new body when Jesus comes back and restores all things. And our body will be like unto his body, 1 Corinthians 15. Good questions, good thoughts. So again, it's more important to know what we can't know, to say what we can't know, than it is to try to be real strong about something we don't know for sure. So we don't know how it works. It's just that it's pretty amazing. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay, well, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for loving us enough to do that. Well, we're really bad to you to have deserved that kind of punishment. You're not an ogre. You're not capricious. It was just for you to punish sin because you're so holy. And so we, we confess that we are rebels. And yet we see the Lord Jesus now loving us so much that he would even tell us how great his suffering for us was and that he would teach us that he was forsaken on our behalf. And so Jesus, thank you for doing it all. And those, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus as the only way to be saved, we, we now have it all. You who did not spare your own son but freely gave him for us, how much more will you give us all things? And so we are now so loved by you that our problem is we just don't believe how much we're loved by you. Our biggest problem is that we, are, we have such a small view of what you've done for us. And so help us to walk this week in the reality of Jesus having died for us because you love us, because he loved us. And in his mighty name we pray, amen.